Three deeper cuts? Check, please. What's going on? It's Chuck G, your host of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, courtesy of Three Deeper Cuts Publishing. Why the hell do I keep saying Three Deeper Cuts? Because if you're a practicing pathologist, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And for the other 80% of you, you have no idea what that means. Three Deeper Cuts means three cuts into the paraffin tissue block in search of diagnostic truth. Finding cancer, people. How do you know what that means? If you don't know what that means, like, just leave. No, I'm just kidding. I appreciate your listenership. But um, we're in the process of a rebrand, I guess. Uh, turns out I'm confusing everybody on the X timeline with three deeper cuts. Everyone who's not in my niche, if you will. So I don't know what we're going to do. Um, my five favorite... Uh, Listeners of this podcast know exactly what I'm talking about, but we're trying to reach a wider audience of new in practice doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, anybody in the trenches of community practice, particularly if you're in a practice like mine, situated on an ancient Indian burial ground, where the diseases just seem to rise up through the soil and onto my desk. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin, because without the high exposure to 10% buffered neutral formalin that I experienced for my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think of all the crazy things that I write about here at Three Deeper Cuts Publishing. And if you're not a pathologist, again, I thank you for your listenership. Welcome. Couple of announcements for today. What's been going on this week? You know what it is. So I'm taking this course called CPP. It stands for Create, Publish, Profit. Heavy on the puh. It's a good course. A lot of stuff that I had no idea was important in digital branding, email marketing, finding your niche, so uh, I noticed that the highest downloaded episode of the 3 Deeper Cuts podcast was, uh, I think it was like 10 episodes ago, titled, What I Learned in 10 Years Trying to Be a Fit Doctor. You guys seem to like that. Guys and gals, some practical advice. going to turn that into a little lead magnet. You can download it on Gumroad. I switched it to Chuck GMG, or excuse me, Chuck GMD. .gumroad.com. You can check out some free downloads there. And you, as usual, you can check out the Substack. We changed it to chuckgmd.substack.com. Again, chuckgmd.substack.com. Uh, because, uh, again, I was just confusing people. So that was step one of the course that I'm taking is to uh, get that branding right, get the message out there. So made a few modifications. And if you're going to be around on Saturday, why don't you check us out on Saturday on X. We're going to do a little Spaces episode. It's going to be me, excuse me, it's going to be Dr. Imran Ally, A-L-L-Y. He is a family practice doc out on the West Coast, does a lot of sports medicine. He's also a savage, does rock climbing, marathoning weightlifting, all the good stuff. Practices what he preaches. Because that's that's who I want listening to this podcast. Physicians who are serious 
healthcare workers who are serious. Good. Uh, not too serious, though. And uh, Dr. Heath. Dr. Heath is a practicing clinical psychologist somewhere in the Southeast. I met him on X. He's a highly experienced uh, psychotherapist. He's also a forensic psychologist, and he's just seen a lot of the world. So the topic on Saturday at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time is going to be how to stay fit as a working professional, how to stay fit as as a professional working in a career where you don't have a lot of free time, especially when you're on the come up. And I think everybody can relate to that. So it's going to be an Ask the Doctor section, session. 30 minutes, we're just going to talk about what our answer to the question was, what our oh crap moment was. Everybody, every doctor I know has had that, at least every doctor I know who takes fitness seriously. They have that oh crap moment in the beginning of your career. That moment where you realize that you may have bit off a little bit more than you can chew. That your commitment to your patients um, is much more than your average day job. And that commitment is going to require, unfortunately, a sacrifice of your own health. And so uh, for me, there was numerous, there's numerous times throughout the uh throughout residency, med school, fellowship, military service. There's numerous times where I completely fell off the wagon of exercises, uh, exercising and eating healthy. And uh, you just you just have to get back on. So we're going to share tips and tricks, tactics, where the rubber meets the road, on a shoestring budget, what you need to do in a small urban apartment to stay on the wagon. Because ultimately, uh, exercise and healthy eating is going to help you get through the marathon that is medical training, and ultimately, it's going to help you serve your patients better. So, what are we going to talk about today? So, today we're going to do this is going to be a multi-part episode or multi-part topic. The book is called "Against the Odds: An Autobiography" by James Dyson, the founder of the Dual. Cyclone, inventor and designer. So what was the dual cyclone and why, why did I pick this book? Uh, because it's, it's a book that overlaps with everything that I've, that I've done in my career, that you've done in your career, uh, the doctors that came before us, the leaders that came before us, it, it, all the innovators in medicine, the researchers in medicine, the, the lessons are all in this book. I'm actually, I'm going to get this book laminated. It's so good. So let, let me just, let's just get into it. Okay. Uh, I'll probably cut it off after about 20 minutes and then we'll just pick up next week or the week after. You'd be able to search for it on the Substack as well as on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So James Dyson, James Dyson is the inventor and designer of the dual cyclone, the revolutionary vacuum cleaner that is today generating annual sales of 100 million pounds in the UK and 300 million US. 300 million pounds worldwide in an industry where the term latest technology usually implies nothing more than restyling new color or perhaps a retractable cord. James Dyson, James Dyson's creation has taken the market by storm. Yet the early part of James Dyson's story is one of depressing similarity to many other inventors and designers overdrafts of Titanic proportions. Little or no government and bank support. 
rejection by the big companies and several moments of personal crisis. But driven by the desire to create something functional and beautiful, Dyson went from designing sea transporters to garden rollers to wheelbarrows before striking gold with a dual cyclone. Dyson took his invention to the Hoovers and Electroluxes of the vacuum world. Today, they can only reflect on the one on the one that got away. This is the extraordinary story of a man whose unorthodox methods, unswerving optimism, and self-belief brought him spectacular success, completely bucking the trend of failed inventors and designers. It is the story of personal and business triumph and will be an inspiration for designers, inventors, entrepreneurs, or anyone who wants to know what it takes to succeed against the odds. So to that, I would add uh, doctors in training because I took a lot of inspiration from this book. And so, so uh, again, if this is the first time you're listening to Three Deeper Cuts podcast or the Chuck G pod, whatever you want to call the name of the podcast, if you, this is the first time you're listening to this, I'll just tell you how I, how I read these books. So first of all, I always wish there was a podcast that existed while I was in med school, pre-med, while I was commuting back and forth and an hour each way in Southern California. I wish that there was a podcast that summarized books in, in a way that I could understand them and would give me ideas of new books that I would want to read that would help me out in clinical practice. So this is your podcast. It didn't ex- exist before, but it exists now. Because nobody was doing this. There's so many good books out there. But you don't hear about them. Because you're tired at the end of the day. And you go home and you, you flip on the Netflix or the Amazon. Now you got Game of Thrones. And now you're just, you're six episodes deep into reruns of Hunger Games. I don't know. Wasting your time. When you could be studying the treasure trove of knowledge and storytelling uh, from fiction and nonfiction books from... Uh, from history. So this is one of them. I think this book came out in uh, whatever. It doesn't matter when it came out, 80s or 90s. Um, I want to jump to page four. So he's talking. So the book is written by James Dyson, the founder of this vacuum cleaner company. Um, And he basically just walks you through his childhood, his early adulthood, all of the stuff he was reading, like what happened in his life and just real high level. He's like from the UK, grew up in a rural area. Uh, I think it was the town of Bath, B-A-T-H, that he eventually moved to. And um, and his dad died at a very young age. Uh, his dad got cancer. I think he was a local office worker. And the context around which he died was something that would influence James Dyson for the rest of his adult life. And that was, his dad was an office worker, but he had a passion for the theater. And when he got to a point where he was able to cut down on his office hours and spend more time on his passion, which was supporting the local theater productions, that's when he got diagnosed with cancer. This rocked the young James Dyson to his very core and he would never agree to 
working any job that he wasn't uh, ravenously curious about. So uh, we'll, we'll actually, let's flip back a page. The funny thing about the story of the Dyson Dual Cyclone is that I knew it would turn out like this from the very beginning. Despite all the setbacks, the lawsuits, the cash crises, the interminable patenting processes, the ridicule, the bad feeling, and the doubt, the rippers off and the clingers on, outnumbered sadly by the rippers, I always knew deep down that something would come up smelling of, well, of something better than shaken vac. That must have been the vacuum cleaner of the day. I've never heard of that one. It isn't a pretty thing, writing a book about oneself, one's achievements, money, success, and all the rest. So this is really a book about the things that I have made, the products, the companies, the decisions, the enemies sometimes, and the mistakes often. The point, of course, is the vacuum cleaner, the Dyson Dual Cyclone. And since the object, like the company, bears my name, it is also, I'm afraid, a book about me. My desire to write a book was born of a number of half-related things. Unusually, I think, in the case of men who decide that the time has come to, th- to tell their story, their life, of their life, the secret of their success, my motivation is, had, nev- had never had anything to do with the need to see my name on a book. I am a creator of products, a builder of things, and my name appears on them. That is how I make a living, and they are what I have made, my name at least familiar in a million homes. I lay no claim to the epithet household word, though I harbor a secret dream of synonymity and occasionally imagine a time, years from today, when Dyson replaces Hoover pulls that cunning stunt like biro, tarmac, cellotape, and becomes a noun, a verb, out there on its own and detached from me to such an extent that most people will have no idea that there was ever a man called Dyson. I like the idea of a child in the 21st century telling his friends he can't come out for a bit because mom wants me to Dyson my room long after my bones have crumbled. And I am no more than a potential clogging irritant for lesser machines. That, prosaic as it may sound, is how I have made my play for immortality. The book is not supposed to make me richer or more famous, or more respected or more loved, which doesn't leave much. Skip ahead. This is all the, also the exposition of a business philosophy, which is very different from anything you might have encountered before. And while there is always a limit to how exciting a business philosophy can be, it cannot actually be exciting at all. Business is a revolting word, and it is to do nothing but the process of making money. It is to do with nothing but the process of making money. The thing about this one is that it wasn't conceived by a businessman, and it has worked. 
So I love that part about it because he'll go on in the first couple of chapters to, to say that how much he was drawn towards the arts in his childhood. And he did not take a single engineering class. He briefly was applying to the, a pre-medical or pre-science curriculum. And th- they almost laughed at him. And at one point, one of the doctors teaching the curriculum at that particular school pulled him aside and he said, look, um, you shouldn't do this unless you really want to do this. And he bailed. You know, I think he said something like, if you want to go to art school, like that's what you need to do. Um, To use a Hollywood cliche, it is said that to be an overnight success takes years of effort. So it has proved with me. There were 20 years of debt, personal overdraft liabilities, at times of millions of pounds. Four years ago, I came out of the dark, and now I head a company turning over 100 billion pounds. Most bizarrely, it has all happened rather without anyone noticing. There have been no massive advertising campaigns, not for me at any rate though there have been campaigns from the big boys designed to damage me, or at least limit the damage I have done to them. Uh, It's almost like we have some foreshadowing to... It's so interesting, man, because, I don't know, it just reminds me of like that Elon Musk mentality. For Tesla, Elon Musk didn't do any, any paid advertising. It's all just his own brand. The product essentially sells itself. The funny thing is I don't even know. I don't own this vacuum cleaner and I don't own a Tesla. And I, I probably will never buy... I, I don't know if I'll buy one. Um, I don't want a Tesla right now. I'm a bit of a Luddite. Moving on. Like little Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the vacuum cleaner discovered what life was really about only after the cyclone arrived. For a hundred years, it had remained essentially unchanged. Since the first prototype stopped sucking after 10 minutes and just pushed dirt around the room and the first bag burst on a carpet. Can you imagine? Like, that's how people clean their houses. The brand name Hoover became synonymous with this machine and countless other industrial giants got rich on it. If anyone was going to step in and shake this global farrago up a bit, It was very unlikely to be me, an Englishman who wasn't a qualified engineer. Without even a physics O-level to my name, riding on the crest of one moment of Edisonian illumination. And yet that was how it turned out. The bag was discarded forever and replaced with a little typhoon that spun at the speed of sound in a chamber that couldn't clog. And the vacuum cleaner was in total control of its own awesome potential. It was ready to clean up the planet and ready for a new century. I owned it exclusively, and with it, you might say, the key to every household in the developed world. Skip ahead here. My story with a bit of luck will give hope to anyone who has ever felt his dreams slipping away under pressure from the blind and powerful. 
the first thing to forget is any notion that you have to be qualified to be a qualified engineer to make an impact on engineering. I, only, I studied only art subject at school and slipped into the Royal College of Art through a back door. I fiddled with wood for a while, and then, when it was still looked upon as a barbarian, as a barbarian at the gate, got into plastic and drifted into product design. Convinced that engineering was no more than a state of mind and determined to develop the products I was designing technologically as well as visually, I began to moonlight as a professional. It's very interesting. I'm very inspired by people that go into a career field and they have no background in that. I don't know. There's just like this, uh, just like this punk rock renegade mentality that is just you're hungry to build. I actually had no background in surgical pathology or histology. I wasn't even good at histology when I was in med student med school. I was so much in survival mode, but here I am. What is this like 10 years later, maybe more, more than that, 15, 20 years later. And I, I pivoted right after I got out of the military and went into pathology. Uh, I don't know. So don't listen to people that don't listen to negative people. Negative people are always going to tell you that you can't do something. They're always going to like rationalize their own lack of ambition and, um, they're going to be threatened by your big dreams. I think Drake said something about this, like it's only going to sound arrogant if you talk about your dreams out loud. So that's very true in medicine as well. You're a second or third year med student. You got some side hustle you're working on. I don't know. Whatever you're doing, you don't necessarily want to announce that to people, man. Keep that on the DL. Keep it to yourself. I used to cycle to the village school early in the mornings when the mist always hung very low around the playing fields so that you couldn't see the school buildings. And in the school holidays, we had the run of the place. We would play football on the school pitches with the other teachers' children and run amok in the school itself, playing murder in the dark at night in the empty dormitories and invading the music room to bash Hell out of drums. Skip ahead. Having all that, and particularly the school to myself, gave me very early on a feeling of difference from the other children. Difference from the other children. Who listening has ever felt that? But that feeling, which was only a very vague sensation at first, really took hold when my father died of cancer in 1956. I was only nine at the time. My brother Tom was 11 and my sister Shani 14. His death put me at a great disadvantage compared to the other boys. It made me feel like an underdog, someone who was always going to have things taken away from him. It made me feel that I was alone in the world which inevitably, in better moments, will also make a small boy feel special. I had no one to help me through my boyish problems and no one to cite his own youthful experiences as an example to me when I thought I might be troubled by something. 
that no one else had ever been through before. Life became something I had to make up as I went along, and I had to work everything out for myself. In crass psychoanalytic terms, I suppose it made me a fighter. Gosh, that's badass. His dad died at nine. He had to raise himself. So, I actually grew up in a household. My, my dad is, is an immigrant hero, and he grew up without a dad. His father died when he was, I think, 12 or 13, 12 or 13 years old. And he, I think, was the, the youngest sibling in the house, and, and with limited income, he had to just figure out his life very quickly and very young. So he got in some accelerated program, got into med school, and 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 somehow got a spot to uh, get residency in New York City. So I'll be reading this story about James Dyson. Like obviously, it reminds me of my dad. You know, like of the of the struggles he must have gone through. And and uh, you know, like I was blessed. You know, I had a roof over my head. I had a comfortable life as a kid. But, you know, because my dad didn't have a dad, I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have like one of those Boy Scout dads. You know, my dad was a provider. He paid the, you know, he did what he was supposed to do. He took care of us, but he wasn't exactly like present, you know, like he was always working. I, don't, I didn't even see my dad until I had left the house. Um, yeah, we'd have a few weekends off now and then. He'd take me to a football game. But in American culture, at least the fathers in the neighborhood I was in, like we're a lot more hands-on. So I didn't have that. So the point here is that like a death in the family has a generational ripple effect. So um, this is just just so powerful. The other main formative aspect of my father's death was very different. He had been very ill for most of my life and had been in hospital since I was six. All I remember is that he was quite a small man and that he was a keen amateur actor and director and used to produce the school plays. He must also have been something of a craftsman, for I have some frog puppets at home that he made for production of Aristophanes the Frogs. At the time of his death, he had been about to join BBC television, which was just starting up. But his move to change careers came too late. Seeing him thwarted by death in that way, having done something else for so long, made me determined that that should never happen to me. I would not be dragged into something I didn't want to do. It was always assumed I would be a classicist like he had been, and like my brother. And there was a certain shock when I left Latin and Greek behind me. But it was the very career that my father, however much he may have loved it once, was trying to escape from when he died, and that tarnished it for me forever. As far as I can gather, there was no real pension available to my mother from the school, but the headmaster, Logie Bruce Lockhart, arranged for my half for half of my school fees and those of my brother to be paid by the school, and for that I remain eternally grateful. So he's putting that in his book, man. Like this is what I've noticed reading some of these biographies, is that some of the most successful people are so humble in their gratitude for those that helped them along the way. I mean, gosh, I could just, I've been so blessed in my career. 
I, I just, I actually still keep the names and addresses of the people that, that helped me along the way. The people that, uh, wrote me letters, uh, that kind of gave me a nudge in the right direction. And I try to, I try to reach out to them once a year or at least every other year. So, uh, uh, yeah, you gotta pay forward that, pay forward that good karma. So it's in his book. He does that a few other times. Um, Okay, so now he's talking about his early school days, uh, playing in the band and this and that, talking about the headmaster, a Scottish guy, kind of a hardcore headmaster of the school. Let's skip ahead, page 17. Uh, okay, let's, yeah. Another thing that happened about that time so, so his father's passed away. Another thing that happened about that time was that I discovered I was good at running. I love this part. But just when I started to win some long distance races, puberty took a, group, a grip of my fellows and they all got huge. I was a very late developer and so suddenly I was crap again. Back to the ignominy of second rate academic performance, few friends and no dad. The first race I entered after my own balls had dropped was a revelation. I was 14 years old, a terribly mopey adolescent, and went into it expecting to come last. But as the race went on, over about three miles, all the other chaps started to slow down. This puzzled me a bit. I had just been jogging along thinking about this and that, rather enjoying the running, and I wasn't tired at all. I had the impression that they were all running backwards, and suddenly the leading pack was only a few yards in front. I gritted my teeth and ground out every last bit of energy I had to battle past them before we got to the line. The success delighted me to no end, and I was not doing very well at school, and suddenly I had something in which I could kick people's asses occasionally. I entered more and more races and won them all quite easily. Just as it had been with the bassoon, there was no one to teach me how to run. There was no dad to tell me how great I was. And it, was, and I, and it became a very introverted kind of obsession with me. Herb Elliott was a big name at the time, so I've read a few books about him and discovered that his coach had told him that the way to develop stamina and strengthen the leg muscles was to run up and down sand dunes. Running up and down sand, that's intense, man. Can you imagine that? Waking up early before school and running up and down sand dunes? This suited me fine. Because if I had nothing else in the darkest Norfolk, 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 I certainly had sand dunes. I would get up at six in the morning and run off into the wilds of Norfolk for hours. Or put on my running kit at 10 o'clock at night and not reappear until after midnight. Out there alone on the dunes, I got, this, I got a terrific buzz from knowing that I was doing something that no one else was. They were all tucked up in bed at school. I felt like a pioneer or an astronaut, or whatever kind of lone adventure felt right at the time. And I knew I was training myself to do something better than anyone else would ever would be able to do. Skip ahead. The act of running itself was not something I enjoyed. The best you could say for it was that it was lonely and painful. But as I started to win by greater and greater margins, I did it more and more because I knew the reason for my success 
was that out there in the sand, on the sand dunes, I was doing something that no one else was doing. Apart from me and Herb, no one knew. They were all running round and round the track like a herd of sheep and not getting any quicker. Difference itself was making me come first. I wrote a note in the margin here. Keep a secret. Keep a secret confidant with an unseen mentor. So he's reading these old books of, what is this guy's name? Herb Elliott, who was a big runner at the time, fitness guru. I have never heard that name, but he keeps a secret confidant by reading books. Enough, enough people aren't doing this. Um, the young people are not doing this. Like there's so much value in like flipping a decade earlier and finding a coach in the pages of history and say nothing to anyone else. You gain a competitive advantage by just being different. That's intense. That is intense. Uh, okay. Um, skip ahead page 20. The, okay. Another highlight that I really liked. Um, so he's talking about his classes now. He was a bad student. Uh, so he's talking about his classes. I failed them largely because I used to sleep through the lessons. A typical day involved waking up at 6 a.m. to go for a six-mile run before breakfast and rugger practice. So I'm assuming that's rugby. I went to some lessons, then played rugger all afternoon, slept through prep, and then went out at 10 o'clock for another six-mile run. This guy's a machine. I think I would have slept through a lesson in anything, but there is nothing more boring or pointless than classics. And I saw it as no more than my duty to sleep and to snore as loudly as I could. Back in my study, I would make a pretense at catching up. But always, having put on a Vivaldi or a Beethoven record, pass immediately and deliciously into sleep. My anti-classics campaign is one that persists to this day. I recently went back to Gresham's to give a lecture, and when the headmaster John Arkell said publicly, if Latin had been a help to me <laughs> I rather too quickly said not at all so I, I this part of it I, I don't really understand because I was really never exposed to the classics so like Plutarch's life he's making fun of the bisexual statesman Alcibiades I never heard of these people I was never into the classics I don't know if he's talking about like Shakespeare or classical literature but um it, I, I'm actively exploring older books on this podcast and just off on, on my own free time. So geez, I don't know if I've, I haven't reread the Odyssey since I haven't read the Odyssey since I think sixth grade, but I don't know. I, I don't personally have anything against the classics. So I don't, I don't totally understand what he's talking about. Maybe I would have a problem if it was crammed down my throat. So that, maybe that's his point here is that, uh, it was, it was being crammed down his throat. Next page. I was an arts man. And I was not supposed to be interested in how a car or a television worked. So the technological revolution that was changing the world was allowed to pass me by, leaving me in the reverie of my dream world in rural Norfolk. Um, let's see. Okay, engineering is his father, so... So he gets introduced to engineering and mechanics by like a friend or a neighbor or something. So the neighbor's dad, uh, Michael Brown, his 
his father, Tony, was a printer or at least owned a printing works and was very, a very practical man. The sort of father I, I suppose that you would expect me to have had. He and his son used to make petrol engines and small steam engines in a workshop at the back of the house. The kind of crackpot paradise that I later had at my own home when I was developing the dual cyclone. So, okay, let's just pause here. I, I, I'm showing you like the beginnings of this book, but the real takeaway is going to come in subsequent episodes. But this guy later on in this book, he makes over 5,000 prototypes of a vacuum cleaner in his barn. He had taken out an extra mortgage on his house. He, they literally had no money. Um, his, he, he basically, he almost went under. So really this book is about persistence, relentlessness, self-belief, never giving up. That's, that's what this is about. I just want to dissect it because I, I just love it so much. And I want to introduce you to this. And I think that there's so many, there's so many points in your medical career where you don't want to go forward. You just, you just want to give up. You just want to throw in the towel. It's easy to get really negative. And I think you could just always turn to like, like this could, this is like your, this is a playbook. This is a manual. Um, let's keep going. We'll do a couple more uh, little highlights and then we'll, we'll finish it off for the day and pick up next time. It is the roaring iniquity of our education system that children face this decision at such a feckless age. So he's talking about the decision of where to, whether to go to art school or engineering school or whatever. Uh, I went for humanities because I couldn't see the point of all those formulae you got in science. And I have spent the rest of my life not only attempting to turn the woolly-headed artist who, who left Greshams into a scientist, but cursing the wrong-headedness of a system that forces students into such choices. It was quite simply a case of, right, you can spell, so you're an artist. You've got glasses, so you'll be going to science lessons. And you, matey, can go and go do woodwork because you're thick. Well, that is not how Leonardo da Vinci looked at it, or Francis Bacon, or Thomas Brown, or Hobbes, or Michelangelo. But no one these days can be arsed with the intellectual open-mindedness it takes for a renaissance. And so application to us, or my generation, or maybe your generation, maybe your Gen Z, I don't know. So, like, look, the world's changing. I think that forcing of kids to make a decision that early in life before you even really know who you are. That was still going on when I was a kid. I mean, I'm lucky I had some good mentors. I'm fairly happy with my, actually, I'm really happy with my decision. You know, like my life has gone the way that I, you know, I've steered it to. I'm glad that I chose medicine, but I guess in the beginning, I, I think it does more harm than good if you force kids to choose. I think you just got to let people follow their natural curiosity relentlessly. That's easier said than done because there's financial constraints, obviously. But I think the wool is being pulled back over the education industrial complex. I think like more people um, are finding ways to earn a living on the internet. And I think that, um, I think that now 
uh, college being a waste of money for more than half of students. I think that that is being talked about more and more. And the benefits of doing an abbreviated program like a vocation or a trade school or just earning your credentials on the Internet, you know, uh, improving your projects that you've done, um, teaching. Yourself. I mean, there's people that have, like taught themselves how to code, uh, taught themselves Web3 skills and um, have literally earned their way out of the third world. You know, you know, so like we just, this is a crazy time that we're living in. Like you don't have to subscribe to the old, um, the old practice. So it's, it's just enjoyable to hear how he disagreed with that paradigm way back then as well. Um, so, all right. So he's an early adolescence. He's already pushing the envelope. Um, the house play of 1964 was to be Sheridan's The Critic. And I had taken charge of the design as I had for every other play in which I had been involved. I was looking around for someone, for something to give the production a bit of an edge on the usual predictable run of school plays, and I lit upon the programs. They were always printed out at the local press, folded on A4 sheets, and were extremely dull and nasty. I thought it would be more appropriate in the context of the late 18th century Augustan revival and all that to have to have them done as scrolls on nice aged vellum effect paper. This is this is hilarious. So uh, I so he says I planned out how they should look. Italic script full of archaisms and scooted off into town on my bike to give the printers their instructions. Terribly excited about the buzz of opening night and the appropriateness of appropriateness of all these boys in old fashioned uniform and dressed up parents holding their scrolls and watching the play in the pucka manner Richard Brinsley would have, had, would have had in mind. He was, after all, the great showman and indeed salesman of 18th century theater. Two days before the first night, the boxes of scrolls were delivered. My housemaster, Paul Colomb, called me into his study and leered at me over his half-moons, his face full of blood and rage. This is absolutely ridiculous, he boomed. How do you insult the great tr tradition of drama at this school with this, this folly? It was the most offensive word he could find to describe it. But I thought it was rather suitable and in the favor of the period. Programs, Dyson, he told me, should be flat. And then he charged off the printers, demanded, so he goes out of the printers, gets them reprinted. Uh, next paragraph. This was not one of those occasions where you realize after the expression of youthful exuberance that in the fact, in fact, the adult was right all along. I was doing what I felt to be logical, current, original, unusual, and in the spirit of the production. And here was this bloody math teacher telling me that I was wrong for no better reason than programs should be flat. I felt I was right and that he was wrong. And I feel, and I feel that still. It was an early artistic rebuff by a bean counter, and in the years since then, I have developed a little more re resistance to reactionaries who put down whatever is new and unfamiliar. Who put down what is new and unfamiliar. I used to hate people like that, man. I just remember doing my internship in the Navy. Gosh, like this is another... the. You want to talk about people that go through life with with blinders on their eyes and just cannot. 
I feel like it's it, in an institution like the Navy, and medicine is actually similar, especially academia. I think it's beneficial to be on the spectrum, to have like a healthy combination of like narcissism and autism. Like you, like you'll do very well in a in a very rigid bureaucracy. Um, but then you'll also have situations like this where you have like someone who's like uh, an innovator to their core at the tender ages. I think he's like 12 years old by now. Um, this was so, uh, upsetting to him that he remember, like how much stuff do you remember from when you were 12 years old? You don't remember anything unless it provoked a really serious emotion, usually adrenaline or anger or fear, like depression or like immense frustration. That's what makes an imprint on your nervous system over the decades. And that, and that's what he's talking about here. So, um, so that's, that's just like the first few pages of this book. It's, it's going to be a continued, um, thing that we study on three deeper cuts podcast. There's just so many lessons in this. It's, It's one of my favorite books. And I think the lessons, uh, anytime you get down on yourself, like, I don't know, maybe your research project isn't going the way you thought, maybe you had to scrap a paper, maybe your paper got rejected from a journal, maybe you didn't get that job you wanted, buy this book, dude. Buy this book, Against the Odds, autobiography of James Dyson, the founder of the Dual Cyclone Vacuum Cleaner. And we haven't even gotten to the good part yet. It's just an intro. Okay, so that's all for today's episode of Three Deeper Cuts, the lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist and other enthusiasts of human disease, my other fellow doctors in medicine, bringing you high-signal content fueled by 10% buffered neutral formalin. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the newsletter at Three Deeper, or excuse me, it's now Chuck G M D. .substack.com that's chuckgmd.substack.com at the moment uh we're so we're on Substack and we're also on the other ones but I just tend to this look cross posting these like takes a lot of time I'm still figuring this out I might have to hire a virtual assistant to take care of the rest of this cuz it's super time consuming uh, We'll figure it out as we go. I hope you have an excellent rest of your day, professors. I'm your host, Chuck G. Until next time, be well, be well, and stay curious. Peace.